Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron. Welcome to Spark Science, where we share stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff, and I am here today with friend of the show, Casey Dreyer. How's it going? Hi, Gina. Hi. And this is going to be our second ever crossover podcast. First one with with you, and you have your own podcast called the Planetary Radio Space Policy Edition. Can I tell people where they can listen to this podcast? Absolutely. Let's go to planetary.org slash radio. And I'm very excited about our topic today is about space policy, but our guest today is even more exciting, Congressman Rick Larson. An actual sitting congressman. Yes, for our district. In Washington's 2nd District. Yeah. And we're excited to talk to him about how Congress um, talks about science, how they, how, how does science affect policy, um, and also education, science education. Yeah, I, it's, it's really interesting to have, you know, in Congress, people deal with so many different issues. Right, they they have to be kind of in, instant experts on everything, yeah. And uh, some are better than at it than others. But I think uh, Congressman Larson has expressed a lot of interest in education and science and relatively new uh, interest in space. And I, we hope to talk to him about that today. Yeah. So let's get started. Uh, happy to introduce our special guest, uh, Congressman Rick Larson. He has represented Washington's second district since 2001. He serves on the Armed Services Committee as well as is the ranking member on the Aviation Subcommittee on the Transportation Committee in the House of Representatives. Congressman, thank you for joining both of our shows today. Yeah, it's a uh, so pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. So I I start off the show, our, our show, the same every, with every single guest, and it's kind of going along with our tagline, you know, exploring stories of human curiosity. And like, do you, we like to go back in the Wayback Machine and think about your childhood. And, and when was that moment where you had your first experience with science? Um, did you like science? Was that a hard subject? Was it intimidating for you? Just, I, I would love, our, I think our listeners would like to know your kind of relationship with STEM with science. With science, yeah. So uh, thanks for ha- again for having me on the show. Um, thinking about the history, I was hoping to be an engineering major Ooh. in college. Uh, I got a B in calculus, oh, but I didn't know why I got a B in calculus. Um, so I decided that maybe there was something I should try something else. I'd also taken a sociology class. So I ended up uh, uh, focusing on the social sciences and got a political science degree, which is almost science, really. No, no I mean, no, not there's really. a lot of science in social there, science. There is. The there empiricism is. can be missing sometimes. Uh, quite, a, quite a lot, <laughs> quite a lot. Uh, uh, but, um, but again, going, so going back further, so again, I got this B in calculus, but I really had no idea how I got the B. And I just so re- where, did, where did you go to school? I went to Pacific Lutheran University. Oh. And it was more, it was more uh, calculus taught of a textbook. Yeah. As opposed to calculus taught to understand the concepts of calculus and how they apply um, in retrospect. Right. Uh, at the time, I didn't really think that or know that, but right. in retrospect. But I was interested in engineering because I was very good at math and still very good at math. Uh, and, uh, you know, that I think was – I don't know if there was anything in my life that resulted in me good at, being good at math. I just was. Um, good, good, good with numbers, good with concepts, um, good with organizing thoughts um, yeah. and processes. And so all that seemed to fit uh, for engineering. Well, 
I didn't. My, my son, my younger son, however, is planning to be uh, an engineer. Oh, really? Uh, so he's uh, headed off to college this fall, perhaps to, to live the dream that I could not. Um, well, that's why we have children, right? That's, so. that's the only, the <laughs> that's only why I had my child. The only reason that we have children. <laughs> She's <laughs> in drama now. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think the first experience of science, I really couldn't really um, uh, pinpoint you know, doing experiments or, or such. I think it was really came from this love of math. It wasn't just that yeah. I was good at it. I really very much uh, and still very much uh, enjoy uh, doing math and math problems. Um, uh, even I look at – I play the guitar poorly. and That's acoustics. I mean, that's like standing well, waves. Well, you what, know? I, what I say is, is playing guitar is math. Um, it is. The relationship between notes, between chords. Yeah. Um, the acoustics, uh, tuning, uh, guitars, all that is is science and math, and it really falls upon my fingers then to turn it into music. Right. Um, which is where the where, which is where I fall down. <laughs> well, did you did you find like getting the answers to the math problems like gratifying? Like you're like, oh, I thought it was this, and it, this makes sense. And was that like the, was it the problem solving aspect that you really liked in math? Yeah, what I enjoyed most uh, about. Um, Algebra, trig, or advanced algebra were the were proofs. Yeah, were sort of figuring out proofs. Um, now my my younger son again going off college. Uh, I'm a show your work kind of guy, mm-hmm. and uh, which is right. Uh, which is right. Um, <laughs> As a physics professor, <laughs> when you're trying to show your professor that you understand it. Yeah. On the other hand, he organize his he organizes his brain very differently than mine. Right. And he can get the answers doing doing things differently, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he may have sh- trouble with that in college. They may they may drive that <laughs> you know, they may drive that professorish point of view that you have, yeah. Regina, yes. into him to say you have to do it this way to show to show me you can do it, yeah. regardless of the right answer. But you know, if the right answer lands you on the moon at the right time, the right, right. in the right spot, that's not a bad thing either. I agree. I. I'm always like, you don't have to show me the exact way I want you, you know, the way I taught you, but you need to show me something. You yes. need to know where it came from. It right. just didn't come out of yeah. nowhere. And, and that way, you're right, we can land somebody on the moon, but we also need to tell somebody else how that happened. Yeah, so. right, exactly. But I, I'm sure you're, I, 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 I want your son <laughs> to do really well. I'm sure he will do well. It'll be great. Um, I'll pass on your warm wishes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> is he is he going to anywhere in, in the state? He is not. He's okay. going to a small uh, school in northeast, uh, the northeast of the country. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That'd be hard. <laughs> Washington's so beautiful. It's hard. I know. He's he's already uh, gearing up to come back here, though. Yeah. Yeah. But so I mean, that's super interesting. I, I love to know, even if somebody is not in science, that there's some. I think, affection for science, for technology, for engineering. Um, but with that, that kind of helps us understand how do we get that love or that interest in science out into the public, which kind of brings us to, like, science policy, which is what, mm-hmm. why we have um, Casey here. So I'm going to turn it over to Casey to, to ask questions about how do we kind of get science literacy out there in the public, how does that affect policy, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, actually, I want to follow up on something you said. That was interesting, that you had this experience in college, and you got a, you know, you did well in calculus and then decided to move on. You, you know, you didn't. And did that experience, does that influence how you approach legislation? Do you see that as a problem for students that the federal government has an opportunity to engage in? Can you say students who sh- either don't feel they have a natural fit, 
or don't have the same opportunities that you did to be exposed to it or, or be encouraged by it, do you see an opportunity to find ways to bring more people into that field through legislation? Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily related to my experience in, in college. Uh, uh, to, to be clear to your listeners, I, I don't think the federal government should be telling calculus professors that they shouldn't teach out of a textbook, right. strictly out of a textbook, although it might be more beneficial. Yeah. Um, again, my, my son is much more of a hands-on and applied kid um, and will not benefit from being taught out of a textbook as much as he benefits from uh, looking at things and how you apply things. And so that's going to differ from college program to college program, mm-hmm. uh, I think. But I think that what you know, in Washington State alone, I think there are 25,000 STEM-related jobs that uh, go unfilled every year. And STEM jobs, um, science, technology, engineering, math jobs, are not limited to folks with uh, only with four-year degrees. Right. There's a lot of science, tech, engineering, math in, two, in, in jobs that you um, can get with a two-year degree uh, because the technology of – work is changing, then technology applied to all kinds of work is changing. So you have to have some basic knowledge of technology, of computers, of computer science, uh, of math, uh, to do almost almost any, um, if you want to call it a mid-skilled, high-skilled job. So where the federal government can step in, and we did uh, in 2007 with a comprehensive piece of legislation that put more money into STEM education, put more money into training teachers uh, in STEM, and um, uh, in, an, in an effort to ensure that, that we were uh, trying, trying to approach this critical longer-term investment into education the way we approached building the national highway system in the 50s or the space program uh, in the 60s. Um, but we have since backed off that commitment um, uh, in large part because of politics, I think. Um, and uh, there's a majority in Congress that I, doesn't really believe in that the role of uh, federal government spending and investment, um, that everything happens magically through the, the wonder of tax cuts. And uh, to your listeners, I might sound facetious and sarcastic, and I am facetious and sarcastic. <laughs> uh, however, I think I'm accurately describing the situation we face in yeah. Congress right now. Do you think that, so a couple things there, this idea that STEM is uh, something worth investing in, or at least supporting, is that idea broadly accepted, or do you, is that something you have to argue with your colleagues? Or that it has a payoff, like I, that, yeah. Yeah, I think from my perspective in, in Congress, the argument isn't whether or not STEM is uh, an effective investment. It's what is the role of the federal government to do that because it's education-based versus the states. Uh, the state state governments and local governments still represent 90% of all education spending in the United States. Yeah. Largely, the federal role has been an attempt to equalize funding across school districts where they might have a lower socioeconomic status, therefore they don't have a property tax base to support the schools. So that's largely been the focus as well as a focus on first generation 
um, folks through something called the TRIO program. Which is having a problem right now, right? We can uh, get back to that. Which is targeted for, for cuts yeah. uh, under the this administration's current budget. Yeah. Uh, but the reason we took the step forward in 2007 on, on STEM uh, was because of at least a recognition by the majority at the time, which is the Democratic majority, that the the invest the investment in STEM education around the country uh, was one that could supplement and complement what was going on in the states, but it had to be. Sometimes the federal government is the only entity big enough to have a big enough impact to make something happen. And the thing I wanted to make happen was to really kickstart or leap over or whatever analogy you want to use to get STEM education up to, um, you know, uh, to, to move beyond where it was. We needed to give it a jolt to mm-hmm. move it beyond where it was to increase its importance, to heighten the awareness of people around the country, not just educators, but people around the country, of how important it is to make this investment for the long-term economic health of the United States. Is that the primary argument, is the economics, to say we're setting ourselves up for are we in competition with other countries? Is that where this comes down to? Or, or just broadly, what, what is your argument to your colleagues as to why the federal government needs to take this on well, as opposed to letting states do that? Yeah, for me, it's long-term economic health uh, of the country, that basic, consistent investment. And because you can, states can experiment, we rely on states to experiment in a variety of ways on policy, including education policy. But not every state is going to make the investment that another state might uh, when they're, the kids in those states deserve as much opportunity as any other kids in, 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 any, in any other state. Um, it, but I will also note that it's sort of the um, can lead a horse to water, can't make him drink phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't result in the – you can't guarantee the outcome right. of – of this kind of investment. You can't say you're going to get the next Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, uh, Marie Curie. You, d- you just can't do that. Um, and Catherine Johnson. Catherine Johnson. Uh, you know, Regina, Barbara DeGraff. No. Um, <laughs> there's a, there, can o- there can be only one. There is only one in the whole yeah. world. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can guarantee the opportunity for that opportunity. And that's really as much as you can do. Um, and I think that resu- that is why some folks in Congress sort of back off that level of investment. Because they want that guarantee. They want to see the guarantee. Otherwise, it's a waste of money right. in their eyes. Uh, you just, and you just can't, you can't make those guarantees. Is there a fundamental uh, – I, I mean, there are, there are fundamental philosophical divides you have to work with as a member of Congress. Sure. You're, you're, you have 434 colleagues in the House – and 100 colleagues in the Senate. And if everyone broadly agrees that STEM is a good thing, how do you, you know, just in terms of the process, this this is, I think, a really interesting concept that people have to, that struggle to understand who aren't members of Congress or policy folks or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. How do you advance this kind of, how do you build coalitions behind something? How How do you struggle for prioritization, you know, when you have this problem of some people just don't want to spend money you know, you're, you we're operating under budget control, uh, budget control limits, yeah, yeah. Uh, limits in terms of spending. 
And you have this balance fundamentally between defense spending and then everything else. Mm -hmm. And there's generally it seems to be wide agreement that defense spending is is good and should be money should be spent there, just in terms of the politics that we see around that. Everything else kind of gets lumped together. How do you work for something like this to to make it relevant enough to build a high priority for it? And is is it easier? Is it like STEM, science, technology, engineering, math? Is it is that easier to kind of build coalitions around than let's say other other things? I don't know. Uh, it, to add, to add on to what you're saying, because like, yeah. how do you do that? Yeah. So to maybe start with uh, Gina's point, um, the ease or or difficulty of developing coalitions does it depends on the issue and depends on the times. That is what it what is on people's minds. Uh, who is trying to shape the argument? Uh, who is leading from a public policy perspective the fight? And uh, right now in Congress, uh, it's very difficult to build coalitions around anything because usually the, the president, a pre- any, any one president, is, uh, as, as um, the term became famous when Teddy Roosevelt was president, the president has the bully pulpit and uses that to develop support for the broader agenda, whatever that agenda is for that president. Uh, it's a very difficult time right now uh, without get, delving into the politics in, in Washington, D.C. and around the country on this, but the president isn't using the bully pulpit in, that, in any way, shape, or form that I can see that gets behind any one policy agenda except for his efforts to repeal health care, and there's really not really anything else. Um, and I, only, and I only bring this up because the the leadership, national leadership around to create the coalition has to start at the top, and um, in uh, to to get something in Congress, and it's not there. So then it's like, well, where does it have to come from? Say on on STEM education, and uh, this movement or effort. I, I don't know what folks call it, but. Um, in this year about scientists kind of getting out, marching in the streets, um, advocating uh, for science education, advocating for the role of science in science development policy, the development of science policy, um, is important. It's new and it's different. And I, I and I actually know that in following this phenomenon, I call it a phenomenon because it's really never happened before, <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of angst within the scientific community about whether they should do that. Um, or not. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Do you uh, see? And my advice to folks yeah. like that is, you know, look, members of Congress aren't experts. We're members of Congress, and there's a huge space between being an expert and a member of Congress. And if you don't fill it, someone else is going to fill it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, part of me wants to say you're not so special, and you're not so other that you get to be outside of the process, the policy process and expect others to just do what you do because it's science or to agree with you just because it's science and science is you know, firm and hard. Well, actually, we know science isn't firm and hard. There's a, there's a debate in science about you know, wh- what is the foundation of science. What is, you know, everyone thought Isaac Newton was right for a long time on everything, and he wasn't. Um, don't let the Newtonians know yeah. I said that. Um, <laughs> yeah, this, that, that's actually a really nice transition to where I was, an area I wanted to discuss with you. Yeah. Um, let me actually go back to the March for Science. The Was that march and the actions taken there, did that resonate? Clearly it resonated with you. You noticed it. Did you see the same with your colleagues 
in the House of Representatives. Did that is that something that made a mark? Did they notice that, or was that just washed away through the notice? I love that question. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, um, I don't. Th- you know, um, like a good scientist, he asked me a binary question, and I don't. And, and like a good political scientist, I say I'll tell you that there isn't a binary answer. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, answer the question you'd like to exactly <laughs> answer, answer the question I'd like to ask. That I like to, I would have yeah. preferred you to ask. Um, uh, uh, so I would think that uh, I notice it. I I just don't. I have an assessment about other members of Congress whether they whether they noticed it. Um, the what did po- it tell the, the you, issue though is that in, in my view the issue is, is will that last? Right. Right. The consistency is important when you're advocating in policy, and. Uh, you know, I know people are busy. I get it, and it's also not an excuse. Um, mm-hmm. We're in a republic, a democratic republic. It's not a part, it's not a spectator sport. It's a participation sport, and you don't get trophies even for participating in this one. Uh, you get the joy of participating, and that's what you get the joy of participating in your in your democracy. And if you choose not to, then that's on you and not on anyone else. So it gets. And this is this, this is the same lecture I give to everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a scientist or yeah. not. Um, no, I've is, heard it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It is a participation sport, and it always was, is, and, and will be. And you have to be consistent in communicating your values and what's important and your philosophy because no one else is going to. Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking with Director of Space Policy at the Planetary Society, Casey Dreyer, and Congressman Rick Larson. Do you think this attitude in science of a distaste for politics <laughs> came out of came out of the, a Cold War uh, acceptance that we had we had a technologically advanced geopolitical foe, and it was just natural that drove investments in, in research and development. With the end of that. Are scientists still assuming that that's driving investment? Have you seen that change in terms of prioritization in Congress? Uh, like, I'm, yeah, I'm confused by that question. So you're saying like there's a distaste because there is some... You never had to do it before because the okay. major investments in science and technology came after World War II. Oh, so, and yeah, okay. As a consequence of right. the Cold War because we had... We've never had to advocate like this to Not, get this yeah, money. Okay. Because you could say... Like, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, everything seemed to tie into a defense or national security argument. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's – I haven't given it much thought, given that question much thought. I think that that uh, we, is certainly – could certainly be one factor. I don't think it probably is the factor. If it was, uh, then it has to change. Uh, I really don't think we're – you know, I had this discussion the other day with some folks about um, – uh, someone said, "Well, you know that the Chinese want to build a colony on the on the moon, put a station on the moon. Shouldn't we do that?" And I said, "The moon, yeah, I think we've been there. Um, <laughs> we need to be thinking beyond that and bigger than that. Um, and we should do that for ourselves. We should do it for science. We should do it for what we can discover. And um, uh, but also, I think that you know, generally there's a there is a." Consensus in Congress that an investment in research and development, especially essentially, especially basic research in universities, does result in longer-term economic growth. It contributes to uh, GDP growth, which contributes to job creation, which contributes to my kids being able to have the dream that that I was able to have and my parents were able to build for me, and. 
I think that sometimes the the argument in science is that it's for its um, its own sake and it's for the pursuit of whatever that truth happens to be because the science dictates that that is that truth in that year or that decade until you until you break that truth up with more research and, and development. With, without some explanation of how science uh, applies to uh, either someone's own life or to the broader goals of, uh, of the country, then it makes it very difficult. This, and this, this gets to the point you make about the Cold War. You can make an argument that science contributed to the broader goals in the country, national security, defense. It still, it still um, applies to national security and defense. The De- Department of Defense has uh, several accounts, several research and development uh, uh, accounts. Um, uh, DARPA is probably the most well-known of that one, the Defense mm-hmm. Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, and they're kind of the, um, um, you know, the, kind of the crazy long-term thinkers in DOD, Department of Defense. Uh, but uh, the Energy Department, we created ARPA-E, which is a Advanced Research Project Agency for Energy. But again, this administration doesn't really want to put a lot of money into And the House ARPA-E. voted to defund it completely, I and, believe. Uh, well, and we haven't, um, we're going to deal with our budget, this the budget this week. I don't know what the numbers are in that. Uh, that is the week of July 28th. Um, I don't know what the numbers are in it yet. But the broader point is that um, if you're advocating for science funding, if you're advocating, advocating for STEM, if you're advocating for research dollars, you can't advocate it for its own sake. Which, which brings me to, I think, the, the next question that we both kind of talked about beforehand, and this idea that um, our main question is, how is science presented to you then as a congressperson? Um, how do you get this information? You're talking about all, um, you know, the government needs to, or sorry, scientists needs to present to the government that it's not just science for science sake. But how do, how do you get that scientific information? And for us scientists, if we want to be more involved, we want to use this momentum from the March for Science and actually get involved in government. How do we actually do that? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to think about this. And it's, they're all very practical ways uh, of getting into the, into the minds of a member of Congress. Yeah. Um, uh, every year, there's a, the National Science Foundation does a kind of a STEM research fair on Capitol Hill uh, with community college and uh, four-year colleges bringing in their students who've used NSF, National Science Foundation, dollars on projects. And uh, um, there's a, uh, an exhibit in you know one of the rooms. There's a reception. The students come visit the member, member of Congress from the district and walk through what their project is, why it's, you know, what they found out, why it's important as well. Um, and you know, so that's that's one way of, of doing it. A second way of doing it is uh, I call them field trips for members of Congress. Mm-hmm. You can visit a member of Congress in their office. You'll get 15 minutes on Capitol Hill, one five. Okay, um, nothing against scientists, but I haven't found a scientist who can say their name in 15 minutes. Right? They want to give you a lecture about the science. Yeah. Right. So take well, there a, are those congressional visit so, days, So right? take advantage of that opportunity. Get that member of Congress into your lab. Get that member of Congress in, into your space because you're going to get 30 minutes to an hour, guaranteed, and show that member of Congress what you're doing um, and why you're doing it and why it's important. 
Um, now, I will say this. I can't – I don't know a lot of members of Congress who can introduce themselves in 15 minutes either. So, <laughs> um, uh, But the, the, the point is that the science itself is not going to speak for itself. As a member of Congress, you have a staff that – Helps you helps provide you with information, distill information for you. Eighteen total. Total, and that helps, and that they're supposed to help you cover literally every possible political topic that you will vote on. Yes, that's a very accurate description. <laughs> uh, and 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 boy, we pay them a lot of money. I tell you, <laughs> I've heard about that. Yeah, you know, the pay is not great. The hours are terrible, and you end up finding young men and women who love the country enough and so much that they'll take the terrible pay and long hours to do this job. And so, but, the, and as a member of Congress, you have no, you choose your staff, right? There's no, no one assigns you someone, here's an expert on science, here's an expert on this uh, agriculture policy. That's right. up to you effectively to build that right. capability. That's right. So no one can do that. Yeah. Well, as more <laughs> to my point is that just for, yeah. our, for our listeners, no one, there's no reliable guarantee that any member of Congress will have a reliable source of information for science and science policy. Is that correct? On their own staff? Yeah. Uh, no, of course not. That yeah. you, 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 because that you can't hire um, a science person and devote that one person to science policy all the time because you need that person to be working on transportation or on Homeland Security, or on education, or you know, go down on healthcare. Go to keep going down the list. Yeah. Um, there are uh, just like my office I have a legislative director, uh, two legislative assistants, three legislative assistants, and someone who is half time a legislative correspondent writes the letters back to folks, and a legislative assistant, just half time as well, uh, a Western Washington grad, by the way, and <laughs> uh, I. It's just it's just impossible to devote a person to one thing. W there is a program on Capitol Hill to bring in congressional fellows from agencies, um, uh, from federal agencies, from I from any of the federal agencies, um, whether it's the Department of Defense or National Science Foundation or Department of Education. And what you'll do is try to select people who can come in and focus, usually for a year, on on one issue. One set of issues. Yeah, yeah. So, and I was thinking this is similar to the AAAS fellows, right? The, the yeah, right. Yeah. Sure, it'd be it'd be like that. And so uh, my point that I'm really getting at is that it's completely up to your congressperson to take the initiative to have people focus on a scientific issue. And this is why it goes back to your point where it's not a spectator sport. You can't just expect science to speak for itself. Because just the, the fundamental structural issues that you're facing as a member of Congress, it's either you have a, a strong personal interest in science policy or you have a, maybe a, a parochial political interest in, in maintaining certain interest, whether there's a big scientific institution, university, sure, or district. Yeah, yeah. But beyond that, you, you de effectively do you de depend on others coming to you to help share important uh, scientific issues? Absolutely. Absolutely do. And so, but, but as a, for instance, in the last two years, we, I have reorganized a little bit my office so that um, one of the issues that one of my staff members, um, an additional issue, I should say, that he has to focus on is space and space policy because we have in our state um, uh, Blue Origin, uh, which is a, the, the Jeff Bezos rocket ship company, if you will, 
Uh, SpaceX from Elon Musk has a presence in Washington State. Um, there is uh, Planetary Resources, which are the uh, literally they're the asteroid mining company. That's their tagline. They've actually smart enough to trademark that line. Really? Um, yeah, they actually Jeez. call themselves Planetary Resources, the asteroid yeah. mining very, company. Very, very <laughs> smart. <laughs> very yeah. smart. Yeah. yeah. You want to know what they do? Just look at <laughs> the title. Yeah. Um, you have Aerojet Rocketdyne, which does. Um, rocket engines for the military. And of course we have Boeing. The point is we are building an ecosystem of uh, commercial and military space companies or those that contribute to that, uh, to commercial space and the military space in Washington state. So it was important for me then to devote uh, a staff member, at least devote some of a staff member's time to space uh, specifically. Uh, not to mention um, at uh, at Western, uh, Dr. Melissa Rice and her folks. I've uh, heard of her. You've yeah. heard of her. You've heard of her. <laughs> we've both heard of her. Yeah, we've both heard of her. <laughs> she's uh, been on the show five times. She's been, yeah, right. Well, her her uh, her work with NASA and working with undergraduate students with NASA and the Mars Rover program is not just it's not just interesting. I think it's unexpected. Right? You wouldn't think at Western Washington University. Um, that, that there would be a focus at all um, on that, but there is, and it's an important one. And I think one that, as a member of Congress who represents the district that has uh, includes Western Washington University, it really, you know, look, you know, you kind of look ahead ten years. Say, what do you need to be focused on? And you're planning for your job, uh, that planning the job that you do as a member of Congress. How do you reorganize the work that you do to focus on the things in the district? What's growing? What's not growing? Um, what's the future and what's not the future. Space really became, uh, sort of grew into one of those areas where there seems to be a a, um, a critical mass mm-hmm. of activity going on in the state and near enough to my district that, that I put some focus on it. Does that change to uh, growth of commercial space? Has, do you feel like that's really changed a lot of, uh, particularly in Congress, people's perception of you know, it's not just a government program anymore that needs funding. It is a potential growth market of its own that creates a new tax base. Has that changed people's expectations? And, and Oh, yeah, de- definitely. I think and this started with uh, in the Obama administration. I think it's continuing. It's one of those areas w- where NASA itself has even uh, stepped up to the plate as well and, 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 and made it its own choice not to sort of hold on to the past of no, NASA's na- – only NASA does space. Right. commercial space and no one else does commercial space. NASA has really um, evolved culturally into a partner in commercial space with a lot of the space activities, commercial space activities taking place and being driven by the private sector uh, in in the United States, which is exactly where I think Congress wants it to be. Uh, I think where even this president wants it to be. And honestly, where, where NASA has its expertise and it's in the basic research and the in the basics of it uh of of space exploration you know look uh, i think i think the private sector commercial space folks aren't going to be um putting the next um you know the next probe on the next asteroid that's you know the like the european space agency did um i think that's still going to be driven largely by public dollars but the government activity, like at NASA, they'll be the ones stretching the bounds of endeavor, and then commercial space will probably be coming in behind that. And that's where it should be. And it, it and it it's gonna. I, it looks like it'll be a great a great 
long, long, long-term partnership if we, do, if we do this right. So you're the ranking member on the Aviation Subcommittee. Yeah. And you have oversight uh, responsibilities to the FAA, which has the Office of uh, Commercial Space Transportation. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of regulatory opportunity there. Do you agree with easing access into space, or is there what's the balance that you're yeah. trying to strike there with these new companies up and coming? What, it, should government completely stay out of the way to let those go? Or it, no, it, well, it really can't. The, the FAA, FAA's role um, is varied when it comes to commercial space. Uh, its, its first role is the safe use of the national airspace. To get from the ground to the um, atmosphere, you have to go through commercial airspace. And so first and foremost, the FAA has to ensure that um, if a company wants to launch into space, that that corridor, if you will, that, uh, that corridor of empty air the rocket has to go through, that no one else is flying through that. And the FAA's job is to issue the license to the um, to the company so they can launch, but also ensure that at the time of the launch, the space is cleared so it can be launched safely and you're not running into anything, essentially. Um, the, the challenge the FAA has, the number of applications, the numbers of requests to launch is increasing at a very fast pace, faster than the FAA can keep up with it, mm. faster than the FAA is equipped to deal with, even though the FAA clearly can do it. It's just a matter of having people, enough people to um, take care of these applications. Yeah, the budget of that office, I, I believe your colleague, uh, Derek Kilmer, uh, here in Washington, uh, congressional district uh, in Washington State, helped add some extra money to that office the last few years to, yeah. help, to help grow, but it's still far yeah. below, I think. It's still far below what, what we expect uh, from, uh, from, these, from, uh, from the commercial space sector. Uh, in terms of the requests for the for the use of the national airspace, because uh, again, you're not you're you're flying through what looks like empty space until there's an airplane flying through it horizontally while you want to go through it vertically. Um, so really have to manage that airspace well, and you can only manage the airspace if you have what people call you know situational awareness. You know what's going on in 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 that space you want to use. And the FAA has that role 500 above 500 feet. Um, as far as I know, most commercial space activity is taking place well above 500 feet of, of the ground. So, <laughs> yeah. the so F- far so, that we know. Yeah. So the FAA <laughs> is going to be uh, intimately involved in a lot of this. Well, this, this makes me think about bringing us back to a question we had earlier of this idea. With these kind of commonalities between um, and, and logic of what we need in space, what kind of partners do you have then? Like that kind of that you can kind of rely on um, on the hill saying, like, this seems reasonable. The other person says, yes, it's also reasonable. Who are these people that are kind of working with you? Well, on... Maybe, maybe there aren't, but no, no, I, would, no, I hope no, there are. No, I'm, you know, I have my role, <laughs> yeah. and that's on the aviation subcommittee. Yeah. And uh, I will, you know, I can take care of, of that uh, in my role. My partner on the committee... On the subcommittee, the chairman of the subcommittee is Frank Lobiondo of New Jersey. He represents the Atlantic City area in New Jersey, and they have the FAA Technical Center. So at the tech center, um, FAA Tech Center, the, there's a lot of research R&D that's going on there, They're including R&D on how better the FAA can manage that airspace for commercial launches. Because uh, it's not just a matter of, 
you know, sending out an advisory telling people don't fly in this, you know, right. don't fly through this cone, this invisible cone in the air during this time. You actually have to track uh, track the launches. Um, if it's a two-stage or three-stage launch, you got to be sure that the stuff has a, a place that can fall down right. into or onto where no one exists, no one is. Um, so there's a lot of research taking place from the FAA's perspective in partnership with NASA. Right. Um, Frank Lobiano is my partner. But there's also the there's a separate committee on space and technology in Congress, and they have a, a role to play. Uh, as well, uh, I believe uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson shares. You sh- she's on your aviation committee, and she's yeah, the ranking member. And she's on the ranking the Democrat committee. on the yep. science committee. That's right from uh, from Houston. Um, so, like Texas members and Florida members have a very direct interest in what happens in the, with the space program. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, the Space Coast, as we call uh, we've called it in the past. Cape Canaveral in Florida was basically going to die in terms of uh, having space as an economic driver for that region. But because of commercial space, uh, the advance of commercial space development uh, and the infrastructure that already existed on the Space Coast, they're using that, uh, using the Space Coast again, and it's rejuvenated uh, that, that area of Florida. So members of Congress from Florida have a great interest in in uh, in helping out, so you see the connection. Starting to see a theme here, uh, <laughs> you know. If members of Congress have an interest, <laughs> and yeah. you can get them to have an interest, it may not be in everything, but it can be in some things. Um, so there does seem to be a bipartisan like kind of agreement that this is this is beneficial to our yeah, to our and region. I think largely because people see it as nonpartisan. Yeah, there's really not a partisan way to go to space. Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking with Congressman Rick Larson. So I'd like to talk a little bit about China. And I know you're the co-chair on the U.S.-China Working Group in Congress. And uh, NASA is currently forbidden from doing bi- you know, bilateral direct cooperation with China on these things. And l- let me just ask, do you agree with that? Should NASA be able to work with China in space? Uh, NASA should be able to work with China in space. There are three um, countries th- that are largely responsible for sending people into space, the U.S., Russia, and China. Uh, now, it's not to say that other nationalities don't go to space, but they're usually going on a vehicle supplied by Russia or, or the United States. Um, and it, it would seem logical that because there are three countries largely sending people to space, that those three countries should have, at a minimum, uh, the ability to assist uh, assist uh, in the event of a problem, um, but in the 2000s we were press, we were, we pressed NASA uh, to try to develop uh, just a common docking ring with the Chinese, uh, and that was too much for some members of Congress on the uh, International Space Station. The docking uh, ring. What, well, what do you mean? An international docking ring, either on the space station or on uh, or working with the Chinese when. They're developing because they're developing their own station. They're Got developing okay. their own um, what heavenly vessel, Shenzhou. Yep. Yeah, heavenly vessel. Um, their own their own ships, rocket ships. Um, but for some members, that was just too much for them to handle. They thought it was a national security risk. Uh, most people, well, I, I don't want to say most people. I don't <laughs> think it's a security risk. Uh, I think it's more of a risk if you leave people stranded in space. 
for the sake of having develop, not having developed a common docking ring in case you needed to summon someone up. And since we all saw gravity, we know how important it is. <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's all uh, real, lesson, real yeah. stuff. Do you think that <laughs> it's it, true? So, in your service on the uh, in your uh, membership on the Armed Services Committee, uh, you know, China obviously has its own geopolitical motivations. They're rapidly growing in capability. They have their own broad goals in space. How much of what China does in space should influence, in terms of both defense and civil side of space? Do you, how much should we be reactive to that, and how much is possible to work with it, work with them? Uh, well, look on the, on the commercial side. It's, I think it's certainly more possible to work with the Chinese. I will say this: um, in, my, in my view, the Chinese government's desire to work with U.S. or Russia or anyone else isn't all that great either. Um, uh, the Chinese um, government wants to have a truly indigenous, homegrown, organic uh, space program that is a point of national pride. And so getting help from others isn't on top of their list. So even even doing something beyond just general information sharing is probably, uh, I would say, uh, we might say it would be in the interest of the Chinese government to do that. They would probably argue back that even though it, that it is in their interest, they're not going to do it because they want to have credit for what they, again they see would see as a point of national pride. Um, and, and that's you know that's perfectly understandable. It's national prestige. It's important when a country launches its first rocket into space, uh, whether it's India or or it was China or Japan. It's a point of national pride. You know you want want to get people to the space to do that. But as they're more active, as China is more active, I think it really cries out, and as other countries are, it cries out for any country going to space for any reason to have some level of cooperation. And I'll say this, and uh, there, there are national security issues that definitely, definitely will um, create lines that China wouldn't cross, we wouldn't cross, Russia wouldn't cross, others wouldn't cross. Um, uh, and that, that's, that's the reality of space, uh, how countries use space as well. Uh, but that, that, that we've dealt with things like that in the past. We can deal with things like that on space as well in terms of, in terms of seeking cooperation. From my, my personal view is just from a, from a, a, a policy perspective, a, a un- underlying principle ought to be is that if you're in space, you ought to find ways to work with other countries that are in space. And, and where you can't, you shouldn't. And where you shouldn't, you know, don't try. But where you can, um, you should try. Yeah. So jumping back then here, we have a situation where broadly we are un- working under budget constraints. We You have a very difficult political situation, particularly uh, with the current Republican majority even having trouble passing or, or agreeing to their own budget resolution. Right. And within this kind of, uh, would you describe it as chaotic situation at the moment in, in the House of Representatives? Uh, I think that uh, I think most other folks would outside of the outside would define it as chaotic. Um, it's business as usual for you? Uh, it's not business as usual, <laughs> but it, it's certainly within, it's, you know, you deal with it. Yeah. Because if you didn't, your brainstem would explode. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we should just end on that. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> no, yeah. 
Um, and so within this context, uh, we're all everyone's trying to push their priorities still. Yeah. yeah. And their agenda. Yeah, well, and, sure. and so, we, you know, going back, we've been talking about space and talking about the importance of science and, and how it's been a growing area of focus for you, particularly space. And but finding ways to tie it back to, you know, I think maybe more broad policy, uh, policy legislation seems to me to be a really good way to build coalition or interest in it with your colleagues. And we've talked about this before, but the value of having space as a kind of a carrot to bring people into STEM fields. And mm -hmm. there's this fundamental importance that you know, the country needs to be investing in this. Mm -hmm. And to that end, uh, I wanted to mention that you have a piece of legislation that you've sponsored in the House of Representatives right now. Um, do you want to talk about that in context of, of science and STEM? Sure. Yeah. yeah, so it's called the Youth Access to American Jobs Act. And the, the, basic, the basic premise is that we do certain kinds of apprenticeships very well in the United States, and we don't do um, most other kinds of apprenticeships not very well. So this is a bill that would incentivize 10 pilot projects in 10 states to find different ways to incorporate apprenticeships into uh, into education, preferably a 222 program where you're, you're a junior, junior and senior uh, in high school, connect then after that you connect to two years in college and then you connect uh, two years to an apprenticeship focused on st STEM uh, fields, high-demand fields in science and technology, engineering and math, largely focused in manufacturing. But manufacturing of yesteryear was more about literally making things with your hands. Manufacturing for tomorrow is either about making things with, um, you know, what we call additive manufacturing, 3D printing. Um, it's a lot more uh, using your intellect as opposed to using your hands. And the Youth Access to American Jobs Act would create a one venue, and there are other ways to do it, one venue for states to experiment in how to better connect education with apprenticeships in preparation for that next generation workforce uh, that you know we talked a little bit about this earlier. It's going to be not competing with the kid who's down the hall in a different class, but it's going to be competing with kids around the, around the world. And do you think space has an opportunity to be a part of that discussion in terms of creating apprenticeships and reasons for people to go into STEM? Uh, look, I, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit biased because I am on the uh, <laughs> committee, on, subcommittee on aviation. So all things aviation, aerospace, and space, I tend to use those as examples of how the Youth Access to Jobs, American Jobs Act can be applied. Uh, so the short answer is yes. Uh, the, lo the longer answer is yes and many other fields, but certainly space is part of that. I want to respect your time. Um, you'd, you'd mentioned gravity and you'd mentioned <laughs> the, I think the cooperation between China and the U.S. and that just instantly made me think of the movie The Martian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As well, The Martian, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and I always ask this to all my guests at the end of our show and it's, and I like to bring in pop culture because I think you're right. I, I think that we need to get people kind of, um, I think the government, we need to get scientists, we need to get everybody kind of talking to each other, and I think pop culture is one of those things that kind of brings everyone together. Do you have a favorite science fiction movie that kind of relates science and polit politics? I always think of any disaster movie has, like, politics and, and, <laughs> and science. That's Every disaster movie has those two things, right? But I don't know. I wanted to open it up and let you kind of, you know, show us any sort of pop culture interest that relates to all of these things. Well, I have a lot of uh, a lot of pop, pop culture interests. Did see The Martian and was um, uh, pretty fascinated. 
um, uh, by it, understood that NASA sort of gave it the A-OK, except for a couple of things, but largely yeah. said this is how it would, this is how we would do it yeah. if, if we could do it. The sky wasn't right, but other than that. Uh, <laughs> what is? What is the sky ever right? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this question because, you know, you did, you did give me the, this test question ahead of time, yeah. I'll admit. <laughs> but um, there's just a lot of artistic license given and taken yeah. in any movie that involves politics. Yeah. And so I'm, I really try not to watch too many movies about politics because you know my life kind of ruins it right <laughs> for me because yeah. you know it's like i sit i sit and look at these movies and go that that wouldn't happen no that wouldn't happen oh come on that would you know just because having in it um being in it sort of again r- ruins it if you want a a real historical account 13 the movie 13 days during kevin costner huh. um Although, again, a lot of artistic license <laughs> um, in order to bring some emotion and drama into it, like as if you need a, a um, more drama brought into a movie that's about a nuclear holocaust. Um, that movie, uh, the script <laughs> of that movie is uh, takes actual transcripts from that time in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Really? And makes them part of the script. So you actually do get a feel for the language and for the negotiation that occurred between Kennedy and Khrushchev. And if you want a really great biography, Truman by David McCullough is, is a g- great biography of an American president. Um, I wanted to ask about when you said, like, definitely, no, that would never happen. Would you? Are you willing to tell me one of the things where you're like, definitely, no? That, on which? Know, like, on which? Any, anything. Like, I, I think we, well, all I'm, of us kind of think of House of Cards and stuff. But okay, I'll like tell you that. House of Cards, Less no. murder? Less none, murder. Of, <laughs> none of that would ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> the House of Cards. I, I, I saw the original. Too. I saw the original British version, and that's more realistic. Only because in a parliamentary system, you can engineer things like that. Right. But in our system, in our presidential, we call it presidential system. Uh, it just it it it, it just hurts your insides. I mean, I'm so fr- I, I'm just so frustrated. <laughs> I can't even say it. I just, uh, it just won't happen. It hurts my insides. Yeah. Right. Oh, it hurts so much. Yes. Congressman Larson, thank you for joining both of us today. Congressman Larson is the uh, representative in the House of Representatives of the United States for Washington's 2nd District, where he has served since 2001. Thank you again. Thanks a lot. Well, Gina, that was a lot of fun. Thank you for sharing the co-hosting duties with me on this. Yeah. Uh, There's a couple things that I thought was really interesting about what Congressman Larson was saying, and it it really goes into what I do in my job. So I'm the director of space policy for the Planetary Society, and as part of that, my goal is to really organize, you know, space advocates to be able to better talk about space. And among people I think about as space advocates are scientists, the people who are really benefit (laughs) directly from federal policy uh, to their jobs and livelihoods. And it's always been kind of a difficult argument to get scientists involved in the political process. It's a hard sell. Yeah, and yeah. I mean you're a scientist, and yeah. <laughs> and I mean and what it, it drives me a little crazy sometimes, uh, in that there's a saying in Washington D.C. that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, and oh god, that's terrifying. That's well, and it's really true. <laughs> if you if you are not actively communicating what you want to the person whose job it is to represent you mm-hmm. at the federal or state level. Someone else will talk to them about that, probably. Right. And you may not agree with that attitude. 
and you will just become absent to them. And I thought what or、uh, contrary, you you might be hurt from it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think、uh, what Congressman Larson was really emphasizing is that they do listen to this stuff,、mm-hmm. and that they they take this seriously. If you become, you have to actively insert your self, your awareness into them, right? And that's a really critical aspect of just of being a citizen. But also, if you have a particular area of interest of the government, if you want more science funding. You better be engaged on that issue with the person who is in the power to to help grant that to you. Yeah, no, that was a big takeaway that I took from that interview as well. I, when he was saying that、um, the reason he's decided to focus on space, one of the reasons was Melissa and her work at at Western Washington University and and other companies, and and it just totally made me think. All of those scientists that come talk to me and say, "What can I do? How can I be more involved?" One of the things you can tell them is, "Hey, if you can tell." Your congressperson, your senator,、um, what you're doing, what is your science, and and actually try to get people interested in what you're doing, so that it's on their radar, but also it sparks some interest in science in general and science literacy, and that kind of brings us to Melissa and I, Melissa Rice, and we we work on science communication, and why is science communication so important? Well, how do you synthesize what you're doing so that it does spark an interest in your congressperson and your senator? That's a great way to think of it. If if you can't distill what you do into a persuasive. Not necessarily of a pitch, but just to generate interest in somebody. Yeah, it's like a soundbite. Like Neil、yeah. deGrasse Tyson talks about these, like leave them wanting more, leave them wanting to investigate. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's a critical aspect of being a good advocate,、mm-hmm. which every citizen should be to some extent, because as Congressman Larson pointed out, we live in a representative democracy. Right. And、yeah. if you don't participate in it, then、yeah. you don't really get what you want. Out of it, and so, and this is again really important too. He he said something even more insightful that that people should really consider, which is, you know, you can go to D.C. and you can get that 15 minutes, you know, during probably three dozen meetings that day with that congressperson,、mm-hmm. or you can wait till they come back into your district、right. and invite them to come and see what you do. You can you can just ask them, right? The worst they can ever say is no. Right, and if you、uh, and maybe they'll say sure, we'll come by and check out what you do, and suddenly you get an hour FaceTime to show off you, the work you do, your students or, or whatnot, and that burns itself. I, I always say with with policy and, and advocacy, the struggle is to implant yourself in the mind of your congressperson. You need to inception them. You do need to inception them. Yeah, yeah. straight <laughs> up. So yeah, once you knock them out and do the inception drugs, yeah, on them, you, yeah. you put the little, you know, maybe、yeah. it's like a little spinning nucleus in the middle of it. Leonardo the, DiCaprio. You just need Leo. <laughs> right. Well, I I think you're so right, and and that's the other main thing that I took out of that interview when he was talking about scientists getting involved. You could see it in his body language that, and he's aware that. We could be more involved. Like they, they want to be talked to. They, they, the politicians want us to come and talk to them. And I feel like、um, I think that is something that maybe a lot of my scientist colleagues don't know. They don't know that there's this yearning, this urge for us to actually come out and communicate with them. Communicate. Science communication is a very, very important part of our democracy. Consistency、yeah. is key. Yeah, you can't just march、that. once. Yeah, yeah, and, and, right. And that's that's absolutely, absolutely true because you can march and you can feel good, pat yourself on the back, but、yeah. if you don't follow up every couple of months, someone else will. Well, I want to thank you so much for allowing me to be on your podcast as well and bringing in the expertise that you have. It's just been awesome. Happy to be here. Thanks.
This is Spark Science, and we'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to sparksciencenow.com and click on Donate. This show is a collaboration between Spark Radio, KMRE, and Western Washington University. Our producer-engineer today is Robert Clark, and special thanks to Thomas Boucher, and very special thanks to our guest, Congressman Rick Larson. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet.